0: Well, hey, Cozy Robots, the fancy countdown is just not going to (laughs) happen. I'm clicking the button and clicking the button, and it's not starting. But I can see we got folks here already, so it's good to see you all. Hey, I'm Mike McCarr. Welcome to the Cozy Robot Show, a program about empathetic skepticism. This is a place where we ask our deepest, most burning questions about life and living and how to build the kind of world that we'd all like to live in together. And this week, by popular demand, we have a really special show planned for you. I don't know if I'm excited or terrified or both, but back from way back in the early days of the program called Ask Science Mike the show I hosted before this one uh we used to do episodes called after dark episodes they were questions about taboo topics like sex sexuality drugs alcohol just the kind of things you're usually afraid to talk about and those are the questions we're going to explore together tonight and that serves not only as a reminder and an expectation set, but also kind of a warning. If uh, you're watching with people who um, you maybe don't you don't want to have those conversations with right now, maybe you're watching with small children, or uh, or if those conversations could be triggering for you, we just want to give you a, a chance to know that's what the show is about tonight. And we got so many questions sent in when we announced we were doing an after dark show. So I know a lot of people are interested. So we're going to explore that together. And before we do, I'd like to invite in a couple of friends who are part of making the Cozy Robot Show happen, and now really helping to host it as well. First of all, is Victory Palmazano, our executive producer. Hey, Victory.
1: Hi, everybody. Hi, now Mike. The
0: fancy microphone.
1: <laughs> I know. I got my new microphone. <laughs>
0: So fancy. And so Grace Vaughn, social media manager, joining us as well.
2: Hi, Woo! everybody. Is, uh, joining us from
0: the International Space Station, currently on a spacewalk, yes. floating in the, the void of, of space.
2: <laughs> yes, absolutely. What, what's his name? Hal? What's the name of the Space Odyssey robot?
0: Hal 9000.
2: Hal 9000. He's, he's, uh, he's tonight. here tonight. I'm yeah, sorry, he's Dave. here. I can't <gasps> do that. Oh, like, wow. Wow. Took me right like to that cinematic <laughs> moment. It's amazing.
0: Hal, open the blast door. Anyway. shoot, you, you almost lost me. I'm a big I know. fan and uh, those are incredible.
1: Well, since this is the After Dark episode... I thought it would be kind of fun if we all went around in the circle and said how <laughs>
2: each of us learned about sex. <laughs> <laughs> oh. I think that's a great idea. And victory, uh, a victory. I would like yeah. to volunteer to go for.
1: Oh, man. Grace. I, um,
2: I, This is a very funny memory. Um, OK, so when my mom was pregnant with one of my little sisters, I was in the waiting room and she was getting checked by the doctor and I was a little kid. So I was in the waiting room and it was a children's waiting room. Um, That's what I remember. And I remember opening this book and this book said like how your little sis, I swear to you, it was like my, it was for me. Like Mm -hmm. someone had put it there for me. I like, I opened up this book and I was looking through the pictures and it was like a mom dog and a dad dog make puppies. And then you flip and there's puppies. And then it goes and goes and goes and goes like it it named all these animals. Right. And then it was like, and your mom and your dad make babies. And I was like, yes, that I know. And then I flipped the page and it was explaining how, and I was shocked. And that's when my mom walked out of getting checked. <laughs> and I went, Oh my God. You know, in my little kid brain, I was blown right. away. Mm-hmm. And so that is how I learned about it. Thank you. Story. Thank you. Thank you. Story. Thank you. Thank
1: you. great story. Yeah. Mine is also a storybook. Um, when I was about seven, I think, which I, I don't know if that's young or too old. I, I don't know when it's appropriate, but my mom felt that it was appropriate to introduce me to sex. And so she gave us an illustrated book that did not have animals in it. It was illustrated wow. humans. Mm. Um, and it seemed very like Adam and Eve-ish, the art, like mm-hmm. they were always in gardens. And I like distinctly <laughs> remember a man, a really hairy man was like showering in a waterfall and like his hairy armpits. Um, and there were illustrations for every page and it described like, you know, a relationship and they're together. And then there was no illustration for like the actual brass tacks of what happens during sex. <laughs> and then the next page was them lying in bed together, cuddling.
0: <laughs> A um, step was missing
1: Yes. yeah there was no <laughs> illustration for like the whole point of the book um but i remembered the words i put it together i figured it out and i was also like you grace completely and totally just shocked yes complete
2: shocked, shocked out of yeah. your mind
1: absolutely yeah. yes mike
0: mine is a much more 80s kind of story <laughs> um you know, if you've ever seen a film like uh, Stand By Me or The Goonies. Oh, yeah. And those like packs of young boys. Yes. I had one of those packs. So I didn't have any friends at school. But the the kids I lived on the street with, we were like inseparable as soon as we got home. and uh, And we did 80s boyish things, mostly roving through the woods, right? Climbing trees mm-hmm. and building forts and all that kind of stuff. And we were out in the woods and we found a black garbage bag now what most people do if they found a black garbage bag is like what leave it alone but we got sticks and opened it up to see if there's something inside and it was full of periodicals oh You're dear like, who would put a bunch of magazines in a bag and leave it in the woods and we took one of the magazines out and i remember the cover and the words playboy hmm. and we were Whoa. we were at the age where like this this language is really problematic, but it's authentic to that point in my life. We were convinced at that point in my life that girls had cooties. They had the cooties. There was something about yeah. girls. They simply, you did not go near them. You did not talk to them. They were kind of, there was something wrong about them. Yeah. And, but it was also, I was just at the age where I was starting to notice there was also something quite alluring, which deepened what I would call cootie culture, Whereas boys were like, no, nah, we got worse about Girls have the cougars, because we were fascinated by them. So there was this magazine, which we had heard mythology of, the great Playboy magazine, but we didn't know what it was. So we opened the magazine, and I remember having no idea what I was looking at, but thinking... It's good. This is <laughs> I, this is something I should be seeing. I'm upset. I haven't seen it before now. Uh, my face is very hot. All of a sudden, what is happening? There was a whole series of things happening that confused and overwhelmed me. And so, of course, what did I do? Went straight home and asked my dad. Oh, that is hey, dad. so. That's sweet. really
1: sweet. We yes.
0: found these things in the woods and. Uh, I looked at the pictures and I just I I don't I don't think girls have cooties. <laughs> I just I think I would like to touch a girl. I think mm-hmm. that would be great. Mm-hmm. How do you touch a girl? And just like ask like without knowing <laughs> what is all the, what is sex what is sexual intimacy? And my dad was great. He hey mm-hmm. I didn't get in trouble for finding something in the woods. And B, he sort of explained like how love leads to intimacy and how sometimes intimacy happens without love. And here's kind of the mechanics of what happens. And here's how children are eventually born. And and then he kind of got done talking about that. And he said, do you have any questions? You can ask me anything you want now, or if you want to think about it and ask me later, you can ask me questions about this anytime you want, and you'll never get in trouble. And so I learned about sex and sexuality from my father to the point that when kind of middle school culture started having this peer communication about sex that was frankly often factually incorrect. Like I knew more about these things than my peers because they were, the internet wasn't around when I was in middle school (laughs) in any meaningful sense. It was just people passed information around. And I was kind of reflecting on it, like, right before we started the show, how my approach to these taboo topics like drugs, like sex and sexuality, kind of come down to that moment. Because I wasn't taught to feel shame about curiosity around sex and sexuality. And because of that, I got really good information and could make informed decisions throughout my life. Um, And I didn't face—I didn't have any— Taboo around sexual curiosity, which is so common. And that's why I think, you know, not just tonight where we're going to talk about things that are obvious taboo, but through the, the arc of the Cozy Robot Show and all my work, all my books, everything I do, I don't think taboos are helpful or useful ways of regulating human behavior. I think it's far, far, far better to give people information, to talk about ethics, to talk about morality, and to give a case why a behavior might be more or less ideal in circumstances opposed to just going, oh, no, 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 no. You can't ask about that. And I think the number of questions that we get coming into the program when we open, specifically open the door for topics like this kind of validates that the taboo approach is more normalized in our culture, that people have been shamed for being curious about things. And curiosity, by the way, doesn't imply even that you want to try something, right? There's no connection between wanting to know about it and wanting to do something. Um, And so we shut down and we confuse people. And I think we'll We'll probably learn through the questions tonight how those taboos end up feeding the very things that the people who reinforce and create taboos uh, are opposed to. Um, But I'm really excited to have an opportunity to have an open and honest discussion tonight about literally anything that people are curious about.
2: That brings us right to our first question, Mike. What's happening in one's brain when one takes LSD or psilocybin?
0: Oh, start with a drugs question. Okay. (laughs) I have a particular uh, interest and passion in psychedelic drugs um, because they have been made out to be some spooky, terrible thing. I remember the stories that I was told as a child in the 80s about these substances, about the way they would cause psychotic breaks or cause people to go into violent uh, activities or to cause self-harm by leaping off a building, believing they could fly or whatever. There were these fantastical stories. I remember being uh, told uh, by someone at church that Jimi Hendrix was in league with Satan because he used to... Cut his forehead with a razor blade, and then put LSD on his forehead, and then put his headband around it. That's not how you take LSD, by the way. So, you know, talk about bad information. Um, and you know, as I've, as we look at the medical literature, uh, these substances seem relatively safe medically speaking. They also seem to have pretty profound therapeutic uses in um, treating. Difficult mental health disorders, and that comes down to the very mechanism of action that this question is based on. How do these work in the brain? Well, uh, they link up. To neuroreceptors in our brain, the, the, the parts of cells that neurotransmitters, chemical agents that regulate brain function, bind to. They're called receptors. And uh, psilocybin and LSD both bind to receptors in our brain. And in doing so, temporarily change the way a brain functions. You know, our brains are made of neural networks. And those neural networks are formed by things called neurons, which is a single brain cell or a type of brain cell. There's also glial cells, but let's not get into those right now. And in between neurons are synapses, the connection between brain cells. And one of the things that creates neural networks and their strength or lack of strength is something called dendrites. You can imagine these as really tiny hairs almost growing from a neuron, and in that synaptic axial connection, that boundary between neurons, the number of dendrites indicates how closely linked neurons are to each other. When you're born, you have an incredible number of dendrites, which is why life is chaotic. A newborn baby is essentially in the most intense psychedelic trip possible, as the brain's networks have yet Not yet found a way to create cohesion of the chaos of all of your sensory data. Well, your brain spends a lot of time, based on interactions with your environment, trimming those dendrites, getting fewer and fewer and fewer of them. There's another phrase in neuroscience is that neurons that fire together wire together. And so, you know, if you're learning the letter A and you see an A and hear an A sound and you see a letter A and you hear an A sound, that creates, what, firing and wiring. As we grow, our brains get more functional through fewer dendrites, but we also kind of get stuck in ruts, don't we? You know, I'm middle-aged, and when you're in, in, in the middle of life, you don't pick up new habits as easily as you once did. You don't change coping mechanisms as easily as you once did. And when you take psilocybin or LSD, your brain grows a phenomenal number of dendrites. It takes you closer to an infinite brain than you've been at any point since your first year or two of life. And that can be really powerful. So if you're stuck in old patterns of behavior, old patterns of thinking, old patterns of emotional coping, what happens? Your brain becomes more interconnected temporarily, and you have an opportunity after that to subtly or even fundamentally change the way your neural networks are structured. It is a period of increased learning, of increased vulnerability, which is good. It is also a period where repressed emotions and repressed traumas are very likely to come up and bubble up, right? These th- these substances have very low medical risk, but I also wanna be clear, they do carry some pretty significant mental health risks if you don't have the support To the right tools and the right professional insights and the right support networks to meaningfully use this altered brain state, uh, psychedelic trips can traumatize people. They can deepen trauma. They can increase symptoms of PTSD. They can increase anxiety. They can increase depression. So when used appropriately and responsibly, they appear to be very promising therapeutic tools. And when used casually and without access to the right support, they can cause harm. They can also be used because of that that restructuring of the brain, the feelings of transcendence and bliss people often experience when taking psychedelic drugs. Uh, They can be abused in a compulsive way to escape one's feelings instead of facing them. and This all comes down to that fundamental way that dendrites allow the entire brain to communicate with itself in a way that differs dramatically from our daily lives.
2: So, Mike, does that have anything to do with how some psychedelics cause spiritual awakenings?
0: Oh, absolutely, yeah. So when we look at um, brain scans of people who are having, you know, uh, transcendent or enraptured spiritual experiences um mystical experiences people who are um have a, a a charismatic faith practice where they have a set of practices that leads them to a state of transcendence or an enraptured state or a blissful state um that can be hard for a lot of people to get to uh, they may have less genetic propensity they may have um they may f- you have a hard time developing the skills, the actual act. They may f- just feel silly or self conscious and they can't push through it. Um, meditation to get to a state of unity of, of consciousness, to feel one with all and one with the divine, is a very difficult path for most people. And um, it turns out when you take um, psilocybin or LSD or, or some other psychoactive substances, your brain, much, and I mean wildly, more easily gets into that state. I remember the first time, um, the first time I took psychedelic mushrooms, you know, I wrote a book called Finding God in the Waves about a mystical experience I had, and that was not substance induced. Um, That was a difficult time followed by an intense period of meditation. And I've momentarily felt the presence of what we call God um, personally and directly, but it was, it was relatively short. Um, And I, I, after I took mushrooms, I would say that uh, the that moment on the beach that was not substance-induced, it felt like, you know, God leaning down from the cosmos and kissing me on the forehead. Whereas the first time I took mushrooms, that was like climbing in God's lap and being held, right? So it is much more intense and much more long-lasting. Um, and if you take psychedelics a lot, <laughs> then it kind of loses that... That magic, that, that, that sense of divinity, it almost becomes mundane through the accessibility. So even though the brain states are similar, I wouldn't necessarily recommend that people use psychedelics or psychoactive substances their their primary means of investigating their spirituality. To say nothing of the fact, of course, let's remember, these are illegal, federally controlled substances that carry significant penalties for possession or usage in most of the United States.
2: Mike, this question is which illegal narcotics are healthier? Example cocaine versus pot.
0: Okay. So that let's start <laughs> Let's start there. Narcotics are a specific uh class of drug uh that you would typically think of opioids and opiates. Um things like heroin, things like um you know, um oxycodone the, you know all these like the heroin crisis, the the opioid crisis we have in the United States, those are narcotic drugs, uh, whereas cocaine and uh, methamphetamines and MDMA are uh, a different class of stimulant. And then um, cannabis is um, THC CBD is a psychoactive that is in a different family. So uh, neither coke the point is neither cocaine, nor uh, cannabis are actually narcotics at all. Now, you might believe that for good reason, and that's because we tend to call in the justice system law enforcement officers who deal with illegal drugs narcotics officers or people who um, uh, offer information in exchange for lesser sentencing Uh, In drug names, we call those people narcs, named after narcotics operations. So there's a lot of cultural reasons why that nomenclature might get blurred. Um, In general, narcotics are actually genuinely a very uh, dangerous family of drugs because they're very addictive. And if you use them to handle... um, dysfunctional relationship with your own feeling or you get a compulsive or addictive relationship with them and take more and more, uh, the overdoses are relatively common. If you're just asking in terms of what is the danger of a given non-food substance that impacts you, what we call a drug, uh, what which are more dangerous versus less dangerous, studies have been done on that. Believe it or not, by most studies in terms of harm to you, and harm to other people in a combined matrix, the most dangerous drug in the world is beverage alcohol. Uh, It causes a lot of health complications. It causes fatty liver disease. It's a carcinogen. Um, and it causes violent behaviors and drunk driving, and there's an enormous public and personal health impact for beverage alcohol. Uh, In studies, it's actually more dangerous than the second most dangerous substance, which is heroin, and considerably more so. Heroin scores higher on the uh, harm-to-self scale than alcohol does, but much, 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 much lower on the harm-to-others scale. Now, way on the other end of that continuum, we have things like you know, LSD, uh, psilocybin mushrooms are are widely in studies shown to be the safest um, uh, drug that exists. Um, MDMA tends to be on that safe side. Um, cannabis is uh, you know somewhere in the middle, but much 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 less dangerous than the the cocaine's and the heroines and the alcohols of the world. Now we do want to say some of these illegal drugs are less widely available and also less studied. So we wouldn't want to like put as a ringing note of self-confidence uh, or ringing note of confidence in psilocybin that shrooms uh, score so much lower in terms of danger. They're also much less common. Uh, but as we do more research, we, it does seem that um, occasional usage of psychoactive substances is relatively safe when compared with other forms of drugs. And again, we don't want to miss the fact that Alcohol is really dangerous, uh, and I don't I don't want to shame anybody who drinks. I like to drink every now and again. Uh, I enjoy both the taste of a, of a glass of good whiskey and the kind of warm, floaty feeling I get a glass or two in, um, but it's funny to me when we talk about the stigma around drugs in our society and, frankly, the criminal penalties that people face, uh, especially people of color for possessing these substances, especially what they call possession with an intent to distribute, um, is not in line with the societal impact, right? The alcohol is very dangerous. We saw what happened when we tried to make alcohol illegal. It was a, it was a, huge social failing in a period of unrest during Prohibition. And I think that speaks to the fact that generally Prohibition is pretty bad drug policy, and we should look toward other models like harm reduction. All that to say, cocaine is certainly, uh, both in terms of potential harm to you and the harm you might do to other people while on a substance, uh, cocaine would be much more dangerous than cannabis. Uh, Both of whom are more dangerous than something like MDMA or LSD or uh, psilocybin, with the important caveat when you go to get drugs on the street illegally, you don't know what you're getting. You have no idea, and the dealer, frankly, won't know what they have. And most studies have shown that a significant uh, portion, uh, upwards of 80% of most substances you acquire on the street contain little, if any, of the substance you believe you're buying. And that does expose you to significant health risk, especially in the case of things like LSD, where there are some research chemicals which are newer and lab created, which create similar effects, but have a much higher risk of neurotoxicity. And in fact, uh, there have been lethal overdoses of things like NBOM, N B O M E. Um, That is an LSD-like molecule, but that it doses, uh, it is toxic and causes overdose. So be careful. You know, I want to talk about these things. And if you really are curious, there's places where these things have been decriminalized and there are trials happening legally, licensed, uh, where you could take these substances under the supervision of a medical professional and clinical staff and mental health professionals. And so if you're really curious about this stuff, go that route, maybe less the uh, the guy you meet in a parking lot route.
2: All right, Mike, it looks like it is time for ads. And just want to let everybody know that right after the ads, we're going to get into the super sexy questions about sex. So <laughs> don't leave.
0: Super sexy questions about sex.
2: We're bringing sexy back right after this. <laughs>
0: Well, we would not be able to explore our curiosity together without the help of wonderful sponsors like NordVPN. You know, the internet's a dangerous place. I started my career in information technology and let me tell you, people have pretty bad security practices and most networks simply aren't Composed in a way that protects your security and privacy, especially the Wi-Fi router you got from your ISP. A lot of devices on your network they might have passwords that've never been changed that offer admin access. There could be backdoors to your Wi-Fi network if you haven't professionally secured it, and that presents a real risk to you. And NordVPN is here to help you secure your devices in a way that you can trust. They have super fast servers over five thousand and fifty nine countries around the world that let you be online without being so risky online. They do ad blocking, they can accelerate your connection through a technology called Nord links. And when you're traveling, going to public places like airports or coffee shops, NordVPN lets you secure your connection without having to worry about how well the airport secured theirs. Now they've got a 30 day money back guarantee and apps that are compatible with Windows, Mac OS, Linux, iOS, and Android, and of course, They've got unlimited bandwidth, so you don't have to worry about getting an unexpected bill just because you use the internet a lot. Maybe my favorite of all, they do allow peer-to-peer file sharing for those of us who uh, like to contribute to an internet that is more accessible and available to all. So uh, this is NordVPN's birthday, and they've got a special just for cozy robot listeners. Everyone who purchases a two-year plan is going to get one additional month free and A surprise gift. So you can learn all about that and sign up today by going to nordvpn.com slash cozyrobots and use the code cozyrobots. Again, that's nordvpn.com slash cozyrobots. Our other sponsor this week is KiwiCo. Now, KiwiCo creates hands-on projects for kids and adults alike to make learning about science, technology, engineering, and art and math fun. They send something called a crate every month as part of your subscription, and they come in different lines centered around different age groups and different areas of interest, and they contain everything you need to do to build an amazing project, including The instructions that you need, they're so well thought out. They're designed in California. Thousands of hours of design and testing go into every single one. And they come with all the supplies needed to do that month's project. In my entire multi-year history as a KiwiCo customer, not just uh, someone who reads their ads, but an actual paying customer, I've never had to run to the store to get something they forgot to put in the box. Which means when you put a Kiwi code down in front of your child, they have an independent experience. They don't need your help or supervision. The instructions go through the process for themselves, and they get a sense of independence and accomplishment, and then something cool to keep at the end. You know, I remember uh, my daughter Macy the first time she built a hydraulic robot arm, and it was operating controls to pick things up and move and manipulate them, she was really proud of herself, and at the end of it, she understood how hydraulics work. It's an amazing service. There's other things, too. I'm about to build a set of bespoke uh, headphones for myself. I use KiwiCo, too. Uh, Ukuleles, trebuchets, all kinds of fun stuff. It is, in my mind, one of the best ways to learn about science, and you know I care about learning about science. So, you can get 30% off your first month plus free shipping on any crate line with the code cozyrobots by going to kiwico.com. That's k i w i c o.com and use checkout code cozyrobots to get started today.
2: All right, Mike. How do we make sense of fetishes? Curious to know the science behind them.
0: Yeah, the science of fetishes, fantastic. Um well, let's talk about what a fetish is in the first place. Uh because that term gets thrown around a lot. And um it, you know, has a it has a clinical association. And in that way, a fetish is something um <clears throat> That's required for you to complete a cycle of sexual desire, sexual arousal, and then sexual intimacy that is not directly related to the mechanics of sex. Um, That's different than like maybe a kink, which is something you enjoy that uh, isn't just related to, uh, you know, the basic act of sexual intimacy, right? Um, So there's... Uh, all kinds of fetishes. Gosh, today in the internet, uh, there are an unnameable number of fetishes and communities devoted to most of them, which I actually think is great. Um, An easy example uh, would be a foot fetish. And so uh, even though there's nothing inherently sexual about feet, if someone had a foot fetish, an actual foot fetish, not just a kink about feet or they found feet attractive, but to have a foot fetish, it would mean there would need to be some involvement of feet, uh, either their feet or someone else's feet, to be experience sexual desire, sexual arousal, and sexual intimacy. It's something we depend on. And um, they're really complicated, Uh they can have a developmental impacts, so there can be things uh, that were um, nurturing to you developmentally that got associated with sex at some point in your life in an adaptive or maladaptive way. Um, they can also form um, through compulsions. So if you um, are masturbating compulsively, that's not even partnered sex, but uh, you are um, using masturbation, not only for sexual gratification, but to relieve a difficult feeling could be as simple as boredom, or it could be something more complex like anxiety or fear or frustration or anger. Um, anything that becomes associated with that process, the brain can kind of link in as part of it. So, uh, if there's things that are in, in your environment or things you see or things you touch or things you're around or things you smell during a compulsive sexual activity, including ma- masturbation, that can kind of become part of those neural pathways we talked about earlier in the program in how your brain processes sexual stimuli. And once they're there to the point of a fetish and there's that dependency, um, that can be difficult. That can be really challenging for people. Uh, Because what if you have a fetish that uh, your potential sex partners aren't interested in or find off-putting or, um, you know, you just get tired of having this association? So there's nothing wrong with fetish, but the dependency aspect of a true fetish can be difficult and debilitating and is related to brain structure. Now, how how do we deal with that? If you have a, a sexual fetish that is no longer serving your needs and feels antithetical to your needs. I think a really common compulsion slash fetish is sexual media and pornography. Um, In this age of kind of like 4K, VR, (laughs) free streaming pornography, anybody can see whatever they want to see on their mobile device whenever they want. That's kind of unprecedented historically for the human animal or any animal. And what we're finding is a lot of people, both men and women and non-binary people alike, will report that they find that they have a dependency on that sexual media. It actually becomes a fetish. How do we know it's a fetish? Well, some particular genre of sexual media becomes important, and then they are unable to participate in partnered sex without the presence of their fetish. A lot of people now... ...are having to include sexual media in partnered sex in order to complete arousal and in order to have sex with their partner, at which point that can become challenging. When that happens... There are clinical solutions, mental health professionals who specialize in matters around sex and sexuality can help you work through these things. But generally, what you want to start doing at that point is slowly, without shame and without judgment, reconditioning your brain to experience arousal without the object of the fetish. And the way I kind of view sex and sexuality is anything we enjoy— That involves the enthusiastic consent and the informed consent of everyone involved is great, right? What's not fun is when we have a dependency in our life that we didn't put there, that we didn't ask for. At those points, I think it's important we have the tools to choose with intention the kind of sex we would like to have and what we would like to bring into partnered sex and what we would not. Um, But basically... It's all just brain stuff. Like, that's the reason there's no need to feel shame about it. There's no need for it to be weird. Um, And a true fetish has involved some degree of neural mapping to a not specifically sexual object or theme to sexual activity, desire, and arousal.
2: So this one is a more specific question. This person asks... Um, I need more verbal feedback during intimacy or sex, mm-hmm. but my boyfriend loses arousal. How do I balance this?
0: What a great question. And I, I bet, gosh, that's such a common question. Um you know, we weren't taught, most of us, to communicate openly around sexual matters. We have difficult being honest with ourselves about our sexual preferences. And our sexual needs, much less discussing those with other people, especially people we're close to. You know, you'll often see that in many cases in um, relationships, it might be easier to talk to a friend that you're not sexually attracted to about sex than it is to talk about sex with your sex partners. Because there's a vulnerability there, right? If you're talking to someone you don't have a sexual relationship with and there's no sexual interest in about sexual activity, there's a security there. Why? Because you know you're not going to try to pursue sex with this person, and they know that as well. But with our partners, that can be challenging. And now let's think about <clears throat> the typical development environment for young boys as they learn about their body's needs and urges, you know? Uh Young boys typically live with their families. Most families aren't open about sexuality. Sexuality, as depicted to men, is often predatory and violent and domineering and a source of tremendous shame. Whereas the conquest of women's bodies is encouraged in our culture and in our family systems, masturbation is often viewed as 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 sinful or shameful, which means what? Most boys have a pattern of secret masturbatory behavior, wherein they try to avoid detection by being quiet and finishing as quickly as possible. Which is, I suppose, fine when you're 14 or 15 or 18 or 20 or whatever and living on your own and not having partnered sex. But if we kind of uh, think about now moving into partnered sex, very few partners of any orientation or gender identity think of their ideal sexual relationship as being something that happens as quickly as possible and as quietly as possible, right? But because the your, your partner's nervous system is likely developed in a way, been shaped by environment in a way where the arousal cycle involves finishing quickly and being quietly, that shows up in your partnered sex. Guess what? Your partner didn't choose that. That's just kind of something that happened. And so here you are, doing the right thing. You are learning about your needs and desires by paying attention to yourself and you're communicating those to your partner. And it sounds to me, inferring from your question, I apologize that this inference isn't true, but it sounds to me like there's been some attempts at communication during sex. There's been some attempts at vocalization, validation, and it didn't go well. And the, the lost arousal, because likely your partner started to experience some shame that was stuff from the past. So here's a real problem, especially in relationships of cisgendered heterosexual people, men and women together. We too closely associate sex and intimacy with sexual penetration, penis and vagina sex, as it is often called. And when our focus is on a penis goes in a vagina and that sex, and maybe there's foreplay that isn't sex, but that leads to sex and what happens during sex and who orgasms and when. Most women don't experience an orgasm from penis and vagina sex, for example, not commonly clitoral stimulation is incredibly important for people who have a clitoris. And, now we have this problem. We're over-fixated on one part of sex, and we're creating a performance pressure. So already, most men have a lot of anxiety about sexual intimacy and anything involving their penis, and now we're adding an additional demand that's going counter to some ingrained behavioral patterns. So what can we do instead? Well, let's stop trying to talk about communicating during penis-in-vagina sex. Why not explore intimate touching, being close to each other, kissing? And in that lower pressure environment, now start offering the kind of vocalizations that you and your partner are interested in in trying together. Um, And take the pressure away and move slowly, right? And um, sex, partnered sex must be... An exploration and mutual affirmation, in empathy, in support. And it is to reduce it to penetration, to reduce it to orgasm, is to miss everything that's wonderful about sex. If all you want is an orgasm, you, I could make an argument that probably masturbation is a superior mechanism to just achieve orgasm. So, in the way that you and your partner frame sex, Think less about orgasm. Yeah, hear me. Think less about orgasm. Think less about penetration. Think more about intimacy. Think more about connection. Think more about quality. You know, I I deeply believe that some of the most uh, erotic and romantic moments we have happen far, far, far from the bedroom. The little acts of mutual care and concern that happen in our lives every day, or where the good stuff is. I've been married 20 years. I've got some notion of what I'm talking about here. And your partner, your male partner will likely find it easier to explore these vocalizations in a lower pressure, more supportive environment, which means what? Our most important sexual skill has nothing to do with the way we move our bodies. It has nothing to do with what parts of our bodies touch our partner's body. The most important skill we have in a good sex life is what? Open, honest, supportive communication. So you started there. You started communicating. You've made some attempts and things aren't going well. So now let's process that together and let's work together to strategize on possible solutions, including, I think, expanding what sex means to you in your relationship.
2: Mike, we got a lot of questions about open relationships.
0: Oh, yeah, of course.
2: If done ethically, can I put aside my sinful feelings, says one person about open relationships.
0: Sure, yeah. So we live in a culture where all of the dominant faith traditions really privilege um, not only two partner relationships, but um, relationships between men and women who are married and who have kids. Both our, our faith traditions and our legal frameworks in most of the West strongly incentivize men and women to marry and have children. Tax code, property code, estate law, all these things uh, really support that. And then the the imagery we use in media, it's relatively new in our society to be supportive of people of differing gender identities or people of um, uh, different sexual identities to be validated in media. The legal precedents are very new, and that's still what? One person and one person relationships. Well, if you look at a book like um, Sex at Dawn that explores primatology and the way primates relate to sexual activity, you can make a case that the human animal is not a cleanly monogamous animal, that we kind of probably exist on a spectrum. Some people are probably pretty monogamous. Some people are what we would call serially monogamous, meaning they do well having relationship after relationship. but monogamous, each one. Then other people are not monogamous at all. They're they're most gratified when having multiple sexual partners, and this is not a gendered thing. Uh, people of all gender identities can kind of exist along this spectrum. And when we get away from cisgendered heterosexual married relationships, the culture has trained us to feel shame. Now some people might feel, um. Uh, they might describe that shame as sin or feeling sinful, and that's a perfectly valid way to describe that shame. Um, and I absolutely believe. Now, I am—I've been married twenty years. I'm happily monogamous. I rather enjoy uh, being married to Jenny McCarg and just Jenny McCarg, and I don't have any particular interest in changing that arrangement. And she and I have talked very openly about it, and she feels the same way. Uh, We—we're just happily monogamous. But I don't think there's anything morally or ethically wrong with non-monogamy. and There's all kinds of non-monogamy. There's polyamory, which is when people have multiple romantic and sexual partnerships at the same time. And then there's open relationships where you have one primary romantic relationship and one primary sexual relationship, but uh, you're allowed to have, with your partner's consent, sexual relationships with other people who you're aren't your primary partner. And there's all kinds of swinging. There's all kinds of different arrangements in ethical non-monogamy. The important thing is the ethical part. We have a vast history of human society of non-ethical non-monogamy. Cheating would be a non-ethical form of non-monogamy. And we all kind of know cheating's wrong, but why? Well, ethical non-monogamy involves three things. Number one is honest communication. Really clear, honest communication. Number two is consideration. An empathetic, mutual support in the relationship. And number three, and this one's really important, enthusiastic and informed consent. Now, why do I say enthusiastic and informed consent and not just consent? If you involve any amount of coercion or manipulation or deceit into trying to move relationships that you have towards non-monogamous arrangementships. that's no longer enthusiastic and informed consent. Someone who's dragged into consent is not consenting enthusiastically. Someone who doesn't have all the information that's available isn't making informed consent. And so there's these principles around ethical non-monogamy that I think are really vital. And if you follow them, You aren't making any ethical problem. I don't think there's any sin in ethical non-monogamy as a person who identifies as a Christian. Um, And I'm a monogamous person who studies ethical non-monogamy principles deeply. Why? Well, non-monogamy is like taking... Uh, If relationships are a video game and playing on the hardest difficulty setting, the most difficult way to have relationships is to amplify the number or magnify, amplify, increase the number of people involved. Um, And what I've found as a monogamous person is studying non-monogamy has really helped me. Why? Because in a monogamous relationship, honest, clear communication matters a lot and empathetic and supportive consideration of my partner matters a lot. And guess what? Enthusiastic and informed consent still matters a lot. So I think this is an area uh, where we can really learn from non-monogamous people, people who differ from that kind of cookie-cutter default of, Cisgendered people in a heterosexual marriage, they've had to go out and not follow social scripts. They've had to create their own ways of being. They've had to learn by doing in relationships. And I think you'll find a lot that transgendered people and Queer people and gay people and lesbian people and non monogamous people, and all these people who've had to explore relationships in their way, have a lot to teach those of us who are in heterosexual, monogamous relationships between cisgendered people uh, because they've just had to learn how to do relationships well. You know, when we look at uh, satisfaction rates in lesbian relationships and relationships between gay men, and we compare that to heterosexual couples. The gay people and the lesbian people are often much happier, much more satisfied in their relationships. Why? Because they've had to figure out their own scripts. They don't have like the husband does this and the wife does this. They've had to explore their own way of being together. And whether you're monogamous or not, that mindset, that openness to exploring and creating a unique bond between people together is an important set of skills to explore whether we are Monogamous or non monogamous. And in no case when we're doing those things, communicating clearly, offering consideration to our partner, and and only doing things that involve enthusiastic and informed consent, that's never sin and that's never unethical.
2: Uh Mike, this is probably gonna be the last question of the evening. Um it went fast. It went fast. Um, What is your advice to people dealing with the damaging effects of purity culture?
0: (sighs) Purity culture runs counter to everything we've talked about in this episode. Don't make your own way. Follow a set of restrictions. Don't ask questions. Be fearful of the taboo. Purity culture reduces women to property, a prize in exchange for a dowry. It demonizes sexual desire. It fills people with shame. Whenever we look at public health studies talking about, for example, uh, how many men have anxiety about um, how long they can last in bed? Incredible numbers of men. Why? Men's sexual experience is masturbating in secret because of purity culture. And how many women report having difficulty achieving orgasm, not only in partnered sex, but even when masturbating? These are huge numbers of women. and In in many studies, uh, you know, more than half of women have difficulty achieving an orgasm during partnered sex. Why? Purity culture created shame around something that is wonderful and beautiful, sexual intimacy. There is nothing wrong with sex. There's nothing sinful about sex. Sex absolutely can and absolutely must involve morality and ethics. Sexual immorality is real. Sex can and does hurt people. Sexual assault is unquestionably wrong, right? But the approach of purity culture is to describe basically all sex except for very narrow confines of sexual experiences to be an abomination, to be aberrant, to be wrong in the eyes of God. What's the response? You know, I started out my public career trying to get rid of the shame about asking questions about religion because I, had my own experience where I lost my faith and it was traumatic. And then I came across studies that said people like me who are in conservative communities and start to ask faith questions are at this incredibly increased risk of death by suicide. So I started talking about doubt and doubt mainly through the kind of intersection of Theology and science, which is a real easy place to explore. But as I've continued to look at the larger world and to work with literally millions of people who've undergone faith transition, what have I noticed? The culture that created purity culture, this kind of restrictive American-born religious fundamentalism, creates enormous mental health challenges for people. And not just around sex and sexuality, around relationships, around friendships, around worth, around identity, around understanding our own feelings, how we relate to justice issues, how we relate to race and racism, all these things, all these taboos. The way we deal with it is unlearning the things that hurt us. And learning new patterns. That's why I like talking about mental health support so much. You know, I, I know a lot of people there. well, would you just please keep talking about physics? We sure like it when you tell us how warp drive works in film. <laughs> That's fine. I love curiosity. And, friends, the culture we live in, in America and Canada and Europe isn't well-designed to create human flourishing. It is not well-composed to help us understand ourselves, to be supportive towards ourselves and supportive toward other people. And so if you've survived purity culture, your primary work is a mental health journey of learning to love yourself well first. And then from that abundance, learning to love and relate to others well too. It's not easy, but it's worth doing this long, difficult work of knowing the self and accepting the self, including the parts of you that are sexual. That
2: was great.
0: <laughs> Thank you, Grace. That's very yeah. good.
2: Um, I think actually, so I was talking to Victory and it looks like we might go a little bit over time with one last question. We're okay. gonna do one last question. Let's one do yeah. one question. last question. Here we go. Um, okay. What is the science, if any, behind post-orgasm clarity?
0: <laughs> what a wonderful question to end on. Okay, Um, sex is complicated in in animals, especially in people. Sex is a really complicated uh, set of things. Sex is not a thing. So we have some chemical processes um, that create sexual desire, and those are distinct from the processes that create sexual arousal, and then sexual arousal... Uh, leads us to a point where we seek sexual release, okay? So, basically, roughly, desire kind of tries to lead us toward arousal when we get a possibility. Desire seeks out sex partners. Arousal tries to create sex between partners that now have some form of connection. Um, and they are, they are chemically different. So, in men and women, uh, testosterone plays a big role in sexual desire. And um, so there's oxytocin in a different way. Like testosterone kind of can create uh, the hunger to be with a person, and then oxytocin creates a reward for touching them and being near them and thinking about them. And then when we get into sexual arousal, a different set of hormones are released into our body. Uh, literally, the prioritization of you know where oxygen goes changes. We we kind of flood our our, we open all our surface capillaries. Our bodies become flushed. They become very warm. We oxygenate different tissues, and um, at that point, when desires become kind of acute and arousal has happened, the entire organism uh evolution's doing its thing. It's the goal here is we need to we need to xerox our DNA effectively. <laughs> Now sex does, procreative sex is not the only form of sex, not by any means but the genesis of sex in life is to create more life. And that's why we have such powerful sex drives like right up there with you know uh, eating or you know I've noticed on the internet people call sexual desire thirst, being thirsty because if you don't get water, your body's going to make you want to get some water and if you don't have sexual contact for most people, you're going to want to have sexual contact. And you basically get a set of chemical changes in your body that impact your cognition and your brain function, and you become fixated on sexual release. Well, uh, when you have sexual release, generally using orgasm, but not necessarily, there are ways to experience sexual release that do not involve orgasm. There is a set of physiological chemical changes uh, that reward you. They go, that was good. And it kind of resets both the arousal uh, and the desire mechanisms in the body, and that kind of leaves you very clear. Uh, Core state, right? um, Core state is the feeling people have uh, when they don't have another emotion in their environment. Sexual arousal is one of our core affects, core feelings. And when you follow the wave of sexual desire, what's on the other side... Both in psychology and neurobiology Is core state And you get core state after sex It's one of the very few feelings Most people feel comfortable Following the entire emotional wave Toward the other side That means, yeah, you can feel very clear um, After sex You've experienced a lot of validation You've you've, uh, Got some social validation there And, And Your brain's pleasure centers lit up And then the reward centers lit up And On the other side is that kind of clear feeling Um, because your body then flushes out all of those uh, primarily hormones that made you feel desire and arousal in the first place.
2: And that brings us to the end of the show. We did it.
0: We did it. You did it. You know, it's I the so much. I was so nervous, like on these shows, I was like they're going to ask me stuff that I don't know really the answer to, and then what am I going to do? Um, but uh, it appears Didn't my homework of tonight. reading everything I can all the time <laughs> has paid off once again.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Every time, turns out, being well read, it uh, it works in many a situation. Well, oh, man,
0: let's uh let's do some credits and then. Uh, if you're going to stick around uh, on the internet, most people are these days, you could join me at the after party. 15 minutes from now, I'll be on our Discord server. If you'd like to learn how to join us there, you can just go to CozyRobots.com. Speaking of the Cozy Robots, I'd like to thank them for making making each and every episode possible. It means so much to me. The Cozy Robot Show is produced by Tanner Hearn, Victory Palmisano, and Greg Nordine. Our music was written and recorded by Madison McCarg and Macy McCarg. Production support has been provided by Andrew Galucky. Social media management and show co-host is Grace Vaughn. Designed by Sydney Smith. Motion graphic design, Landon Satterfield. Set design by Jesse Lane. Interiors, wardrobe stylist, craft services, and my best friend in the entire world is Ginny McCarg. Thanks so much for joining us tonight. And we can't wait to see you again next week. Bye, everybody.
2: Bye. The Cozy Robot. Sure.